Chapter 8 of Jerry McCauley, His Life and Work by Jerry McCauley and edited by Robert M. Offord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kristen Hand. Chapter 8, A Mistake and What Came of It. So in the morning thy seed, at eve hold not thine hand, to doubt and fear give thou no heed, broadcast it o'er the land. Thou canst not toil in vain, cold, heat, and moist, and dry, shall foster and mature the grain for garners in the sky. Before us lies a copy of The Report of the Helping Hand for Men, 316 Water Street, for the years ending October 1873 and 1874, from which brief extracts have already been made. It is of itself an interesting document and bears upon its cover the words of the Lord Jesus, according to your faith, be it unto you. Interest is added to the pamphlet by reason of Jerry's trial of faith in connection with its publication. We will let him tell the story in his own words. About this time, October 1874, something happened that proved how God will take even our ignorance and blunders and make them to glorify him if we are only honest in trying to serve him. It was thought best to get out a report of the mission in order to let people know what we were doing. We could not afford to get out an annual report, so we had to make one for every two years answer. This was rather new business to me, and considering it a big undertaking, I thought it ought to be done on a large scale. So I ordered 10,000 copies printed. When I spoke of it to the others interested, they were taken all aback and were most indignant. 10,000 copies? Why, Jerry, what are you thinking about? Where is the money to come from to pay for such an amount of printing? Of course, I felt bad, and I told them it was new business to me, and I had done the best I could. They acted as though they felt that my being sorry would not pay the bills, and were only half satisfied. In my trumble, I remembered him who had never failed me when I trusted him. So I said, well, never mind. I have faith the Lord will send someone to pay for it. I was determined now to make the best of it, and that as long as we had them on our hands to pay for, they should not be idle. So after considerable thought, I struck a novel plan to use them. I persuaded Brother Charles Anderson to help me, and we went uptown on a pilgrimage to get them among the churches. We started out, each with a great pack of reports on his back, to fulfill our mission. We failed to lighten our burdens at the sanctuaries, with I believe but three exceptions— Dr. John Hall's, Dr. William Taylor's, and Dr. Booth's churches, where they let us leave some. I approached the sexton of Dr. Hall's and told him what I wanted and begged him to assist me. I want you to assist me, I said. You know we are poor and trying to do good, yet hardly able to live along. By just giving your consent to let me lay these in the pews before the people come, you may do a great deal of good. He made no objections after a little, and going in, I distributed them in the different pews and took my departure, leaving results with the Lord. The next day, a carriage drove up to the mission door, and two ladies stepped out. I had been praying for help, for I thought I had done some terrible thing and was awfully burdened over getting the little mission in debt. As soon as I saw them entering, my heart jumped up into my throat. Faith said, There's an answer to your prayer. No, thought I, that can't be, for they have not had time to read the reports yet, unless they did so while the doctor was preaching, or as soon as they reached home, which did not seem likely. They came in and began to talk with me, and I saw from their words that they had seen the inside of the pamphlet. 
they handed me $50 each and departed, refusing to give any names. I was happy. What a miracle. $100. Woo, three cheers, said I, hardly able to hold myself in. We're safe now. Here's the money. Hurrah. I needn't add that my wife and I had a little praise meeting all by ourselves right away. A young lady named Miss S., a member of Dr. John Hall's church, also found the report in her pew, and turning over the leaves carelessly, saw something that attracted her attention. And as she told us afterwards, she soon became so interested she didn't get a word of the doctor's big sermon, and before the meeting closed, she made up her mind to come down and see for herself. She got an escort and came to the old tumble-down mission. After attending a number of the meetings, she became very deeply interested about her own soul's salvation. One Sunday night, she was there, and we had a wonderful meeting. The Lord bared his arm there that night in power. Everybody felt it, and there were many tears and sobs as God touched heart after heart in that room. While the meeting was in process, Miss S. slipped a beautiful cluster diamond ring from her finger, and at the close of the service, she passed it quietly into my wife's hands and whispered earnestly, Here, Mrs. McCauley, take this and sell it for the good of the mission. Do pray for me, won't you? I'm an awful, wicked sinner. We were surprised. Such a beautiful, well-dressed young lady, an awful sinner, and coming to be saved. Why, that was worth more than all the diamond rings in the world. We talked with her the best we could, and she said as she left us that she would call the next evening about tea time. She came as she promised, and after some talk about spiritual things, she knelt down alongside the old sofa, and we prayed for her, and before she arose, she gave her heart to Christ. All she could say was, I'm very unworthy, but if the Lord can condescend to take me, I will take him as my Savior. She arose from her knees, simply trusting in the Lord. The hour for meeting had now arrived, and as we started to go downstairs to the chapel, she said, You must not ask me to speak in the public congregation. If you should, it seems to me I should faint. All right, I answered. If you faint, I'll have someone ready to pick you up. We went into the chapel and I opened the meeting. I had scarcely had time to sit down when we were all amazed to see Miss S. jump to her feet and with glowing words testify to Christ's power to save. The Lord blessed her in the act and blessed her testimony to the good of others. She has continued faithful and has acted in an efficient manner as a volunteer missionary wherever she has resided since. The ring, we were afterwards told, cost her $300, but the Lord gave her the signet ring of adoption, worth a thousand times more than all the diamonds in New York. About this time in our history, a professional gambler named William Fitzmorris, supposed to be the inventor of the envelope game, came to the mission. He had been keeping a gambling house uptown, but according to his statement, had come down so heavy to keep on the right side of the police that his business would not stand the strain. So he moved into a new place in a basement and stationed three men at different points as lookouts to keep the police from coming on him unawares. Finding it cheaper to keep three men under salary than to pay the blackmail he had been paying before. A certain notorious policy dealer offered him three dollars a day to write policy slips. How wonderfully God works and how little we know what is to come of our plans. Fitzmorris accepted the job and came down to see us about it. Standing on the corner, he saw our lamp and asked somebody, what's that? Why, that's Jerry McCauley's. You ought to take it in. It's as good as a theater. He came in to see the fun, but became interested, and the testimonies melted him all up, and he came forward, knelt down, and was saved. He gave some fearful descriptions of his terrible business and the scenes he had witnessed while engaged in it. 
He told how men of families would come in and stake little by little their earnings until every cent was gone. Then, fascinated by the game, they would strip off their clothing piece by piece until they could go no further. One of the young girls, sent by mothers to buy policy slips for them, sent into these hell holes amid the cursing and obscenity of the loungers there by their own mothers, until, step by step, they began to be crazed over the game and would buy for themselves. From an experiment, it grew to be a habit. From a habit, it became a passion, and in the end, they would sell themselves to get money to gamble with. His revelations were published in the daily papers, and his old associates became so enraged that they threatened to kill him. We kept him with us, however, and thus protected him from their fury. His health continued to fail, and we expected soon to have the sad task of laying him in the grave. But his friends came and took charge of him, and by his consent removed him to their home. He got no better, and it was plain to all that his end was near. He did not fear death, but continued strong in his faith, and clear in the assurance of his acceptance with God through Jesus Christ. Finally, when almost gone, he made a request to be carried to the dear old mission, where he had found peace to his poor soul, that he might there testify to the precious love of Christ once more. Finding his heart was set on it, his friends consented, and he was brought in a carriage to the mission, and there, held up on his feet by a man on each side of him, he gave his dying testimony. It was a wonderful time. It seemed as though we stood on the steps of heaven, and you couldn't hear a breath. He stood, and with feeble voice and shining face, every word of convincing power gave his last testimony. I know I am dying. I know it. And because I know it, I came here to give my dying testimony, to speak once more in this hallowed spot, ere my tongue is silent forever. You never can put on paper the tones of his voice or the effect of that wonderful scene. No one who was there will ever forget it. Tidings of the old Water Street work have gone out into all the earth, and fruits of grace gathered within its walls are to be found in all quarters of the globe. The audiences from night to night had always more or less of a transient nature, and while often persons living close by despised the place, men and women from afar found in it a beacon light, directing them into the haven of eternal blessedness. Still at times, gems for the Savior's crown were gathered at its doors. Some of the neighbors were converted, as the following story will show. Jerry, in his record, says, The converts were not from among our neighbors, but were mostly visitors, wanderers, sailors, etc. One or two neighbors from across the street finally ventured to drop in. One case is well worth repeating. One night, a beautiful little child, about five years old, came to the door. She was a lovely little thing, with bright blue eyes and long golden curls, a perfect little picture, notwithstanding the poor care she had received. She turned to the man at the door and asked, "'Say, mister, won't you please let me in? I'll be good if you will.' "'Oh, no,' he said, looking down at the little waif. "'You couldn't behave.' "'Yes, I will. I'll be awful good, because I want to hear the singing.' He yielded to her entreaties, and she went in, and folding her little hands on her lap, sat as quiet as a mouse until the meeting closed. The next evening she came again, leading by the hand another little girl, younger than herself, but looking very much like her. She again asked permission to go in, and having referred to her good behavior the previous night, it was granted. They walked deliberately up to the very front seat, and lifting her little sister well up on the bench, Molly sat down beside her and closely watched everything that was said or done. They behaved beautifully, and at the close of the meeting my wife kissed them both, and then gave them a chunk of cake each, and they ran out happily enough. This happened several nights, and they always got their kiss and cake. 
One night during the meeting, the mother of the little girls came to the door drunk and asked if the children were there. The man replied he thought they were, when she said, I'll be thankful to you, mister, if you'll go in and kick them two children out. We don't do things that way here, said the man. When she called Molly, Molly Rollins come out here. Poor little Molly turned pale and trembled and looked at me with such a frightened look like a scared bird. The mother screamed out her name again and added, I'll give it to you going in there with those black Protestants, you little wretch. And as poor Molly came out, dragging her little sister after her, the drunken mother caught her by the beautiful curly hair and flung her clear off the ground. I will kill you if you go in there again, she screamed. Do they give you any beer in there, say? The poor little thing looked up, though. Tears were in her eyes and said, Oh, Mama, ain't you awful? They don't drink any beer in there and they don't get drunk neither. The next night, just as service commenced, in walked Molly and Jenny again. Aren't you afraid your mother will kill you? We asked. Oh, no, she answered quickly as she turned her blue eyes up to my face. I ain't afraid. I like the singing. Everybody around the mission loved those darlings and was pleased to have them there. We missed them for two or three evenings and afterwards learned the father had returned from a sea voyage. The husband and wife both went on a terrible spree with the money he brought until finally he brutally turned the mother and little ones out of the house into the cold October night air. That night, about 11 o'clock, Mrs. McCauley heard her name called. She listened a moment and recognized Molly's voice calling from the street. Mrs. McCauley, oh, Mrs. McCauley, come down. I want to tell you something. After a minute, the little voice rang out again. Mrs. McCauley, oh, Mrs. McCauley. On going down, my wife learned that the father had put them out and they had been on the roof. As the wind blew cold, the little one said to her mother, Mama, I know a place where the wind won't blow and we won't be afraid. Where's that? asked her mother. Over in the mission, said the child. My wife came upstairs saying to me, Mrs. Rollins is here with her children. I have let them in. I believe it may be the salvation of that woman's soul. We took them upstairs, where we had the only accommodation the old mission house afforded. It was a rickety affair, but it was the best we could do. There was a straw tick there and a few old quilts, and as they turned in, Molly looks up at her mother and says, Thank God, Mother, we have a good bed tonight. In the morning, we gave them their breakfast the same as we had ourselves and sat with them at the table. We never mentioned anything to the mother about her conduct, but treated them kindly, and after breakfast, they left. This was the first step toward reaching that poor woman, and it turned out that the little acts of kindness were not lost. The man, having spent his money, went off to sea again, but left the family his advance money, and this was the mother's opportunity for another big spree, and she made the most of it. She spread it everywhere, and soon the money was gone. But rum must be had, and one thing after another went to the pawn shop till there was nothing left that would bring a penny. The poor children were dirty and unwashed, and their hair was all matted and tangled, and they looked fearful. They came in one day, their lips blue with the cold. My wife warmed them and then washed them, combed out their hair, and curled it beautifully over their foreheads. She then begged two little dresses from a friend who had some small girls. The dresses were somewhat worn, but were neat and clean, and the dear little things were happy as larks. When they went over where their mother was drinking, she hardly recognized them. Oh, said she, what happened to you? Who did that? The rum seller's wife remarked, why, I'd never known them. Nor I, said the mother. I hardly knew them myself. Well, you look good anyhow. This was the second blow on that hard heart. Shortly after this, the long spree began to tell on Mrs. Rollins, and she was taken sick, 
and after suffering a while, she sent Molly over after my wife. This being the first move towards us she had ever made, we hailed it with joy. My wife went as requested, accompanied by a friend, and oh, what a miserable sight met their eyes. The room, robbed of everything movable but the remains of a bed, fragments of broken dishes scattered all around the dirty floor, the room cheerless, fireless, comfortless, the dishes that were not broken were dirty and piled every way, while the stench of the neglected room was fearful. They found her stretched with the horrors, delirium tremens, and without saying much to her, straightened up the room, made a fire after getting some coal, and then the friend went home and brought over a big pitcher of good, strong, hot tea, and told her to drink it, which she did in a hurry. This helped her somewhat, and they talked to her about her condition and pointed her to the Lamb of God for help and prayed with her. These acts of kindness were the hardest blow of all to her prejudices, and she broke down and said, If I ever get well of this spell, I'm going to come over, Mrs. Macaulay, and see you at the mission. She got well, and one night she came into the mission during the meeting. We were singing, the stone rolled away, when she screamed right out, and starting from her seat, ran through the kitchen, thinking to get out that way. My wife followed quickly and caught her, and then kneeling down beside her, prayed earnestly with the poor, sobbing creature. She found the Lord's help, and he so sweetly saved her that it was apparent to all. At first she used to put an old shawl around her head and draw it well over her face, and then go around the block before entering the mission to keep the neighbors from recognizing her. But afterwards she would walk straight across the street to and from her house, singing The Stone Rolled Away. She was bitterly persecuted because she was a turncoat, as they termed it. Her door was broken in, slops were thrown over her, and they even caught the poor little children and beat them, hoping to enrage her and thus make her return to drink again. The errors of her past life began to tell on her, and she became very ill with consumption. The people she had spent all her money with would not do anything for her, and we took her to Dr. Cullis's home for consumptives in Boston. We went with her and left her in the good doctor's care. She grew gradually worse until almost at death's door. She had a dream or vision one day in which she thought everyone had forsaken her. Even we had ceased to love her, and God had forgotten her. But suddenly she heard a voice, I won't leave you. I'll be with you all the time. And she was encouraged. She also thought that Mrs. Macaulay was beside her bedside and felt relieved. Dr. C. wrote us to come on if we wanted to see her alive, and we went immediately to Boston. My wife walked in and stood by her bed, and when the poor invalid opened her eyes, she smiled faintly and said, That is just where I saw you stand. And she reached up and clasped her poor, bony arms around my wife's neck, and oh, such a scene I never witnessed before. I could not stand it and went out of the room to let them sob away, but I heard her murmur, Oh, how I love you both. I love you better than my own children. This more than paid us for all our efforts. The next day she passed over in the triumphs of faith and redeeming love. Before she died, she expressed a desire to visit that place in Water Street where God spoke peace to her soul and added, Dead or alive, I want to be under that blessed roof once more. In accordance with this wish, her body was brought on to the mission for burial. There was a very large turnout to the funeral services, and a stranger gathering never was seen. There were present many ladies and gentlemen from the first circles of society, and there were several of Mrs. Rollins's old comrades, some of them dragging their children with them to get a last look at the face of their late acquaintance. Many of those parents were confirmed drunkards of the lowest type and had entered this mission for the first time in their lives, yet all this seemed forgotten in the presence of the dead.
End of chapter 8.